Well, if you're new with us today, we're in a series titled Q&A, Your Questions, God's Answers. The your part means that the questions came from this congregation. Uh, the God part means that we're looking at answers from the Bible, and uh, I'm doing my very best uh, to provide answers that are consistent with God's Word. Titled today, this is part one of a two-part message, What Does the Bible Say About Polygamy? homosexuality, and transgenderism. Um, I need to tell you um, up front that the first hour of this sermon went a little longer than I anticipated, so you might just, you know, bring your pillow and (laughs) hang out. But I hope you'll bring your mind, I hope you'll bring a pen and a piece of paper and a Bible, um, because we're going to be looking at a number of passages of Scripture this morning. Uh, The question, what does the Bible say about polygamy, homosexuality, and transgenderism, is actually on the minds of many people. I receive frequent questions on this topic. And most recently, someone in our church whom I love and appreciate asked me what I thought about whether a Christian should attend a a wedding of two people of the same sex. And we had a, a great discussion about that. There are differing beliefs and attitudes about homosexuality and transgenderism in particular, And uh, when I've taught on this in the past, uh, each time at least one person has left our church. (laughs) Um, Hope you won't. But it's of great importance that we get clear on this, that we gain a clear understanding of what God's will is, what the Bible teaches on these matters that are increasingly pressing on us in our own homes, in our families, in our schools, and, and in society at large. And because nearly everyone these days knows someone who is homosexual or is who, is who is experimenting with homosexual behavior. And because the homosexual revolution is now morphing into a transgender revolution, it's incumbent upon us as followers of Jesus to know uh, how to interact in this social environment, uh, how to relate to people who are caught up in these things with genuine love and uh but at the same time without compromising our truth, compromising truth and compromising our own convictions. This morning I want to begin this conversation with what may seem a surprising addition to the conversation, uh, which is the topic of polygamy. Uh, it is another of a variety of uh, marital um, kind of arrangements that are popping up in our society that go against the grain of tradition. Um, there's, a, there's a rising interest in our society in polygamy. And, uh, and it's gaining more and more approval in the United States. As, as background, where I intend to go this morning is to take a look, a brief look, at LifePoint's statement on marriage. And then we're going to look at several different passages of Scripture, and we're going to move fairly rapidly. And so I encourage you to take notes as we go, um, goal there is to just get an overview of the major biblical teaching on the topic. Uh, then we're going to explore the phenomenon of the resurgence in approval of polygamy in our culture and then attempt to draw some appropriate conclusions. So let's begin with the, the life point statement on marriage. We believe God's plan for human sexuality is that it be expressed only within the context of marriage and that God created man and woman as unique biological persons designed to complement each other. God instituted monogamous marriage between male and female as the foundation of the family and the basic structure of human society. For this reason, it is God alone who possesses the ultimate authority to define and to prescribe the marital relationship. We believe that marriage is exclusively the lifelong union of one genetic male and one genetic female. If you go on LifePoint's uh, website, you'll find that uh, with our other uh, statements of belief. Well, let's dive into what I'm just calling a concise overview of God's design for marriage and human sexuality. We're just going to be looking very quickly at uh, major passages. We're going to spend most of our time in Genesis 1 and 2 but then we're going to look at a number of other passages as well. In the very first chapter of Genesis, after the first five days of creation, 
We read this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I think you'll agree with me that as we think about the image of God in humanity, it's it's something of a mystery. Uh, It's nearly impossible to articulate a precise definition. Something we can affirm, however, regarding the imago dei, the image of God in humanity, is that it includes, it requires, and it's reflected in humanity as God created us both male and female. Please notice with me in verse 26 of Genesis 1 that the primary purpose for which God created mankind, both male and female, is to bear and to reflect the image and the likeness of God so that there is something about maleness and femaleness that complete the the image of God together to exercise dominion or rule over the rest of creation. God has made it clear that men and women share in image bearing, bearing the image of God, that we are equal to one another, that in honor, and in dignity. Then notice in verse 28 that men and women share by design and of necessity the responsibility for fulfillment of God's command that we procreate, that is that we reproduce, we be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Additionally, men and women share equally in fulfilling the command to steward God's good creation and rule over it together. We move to Genesis 2, we find um, what I usually describe as a micro uh, account of creation. Genesis 1, the macro account, and, and Genesis 2, the micro account. At the beginning of chapter 2, we find man, uh, God creating man from the dust of the ground, God planting a garden and in a place called Eden, uh, which actually has definite geographical indicators. Uh, It was a real place uh, in a real portion of the earth, probably today in northern Iraq. Um, And then there's the command to the man to to tend the garden, to keep the garden. And then there's that prohibition about not eating, well, well, permission first to eat from every tree in the garden. Uh, But of the one tree they should not eat, that set up uh, a problem of sin. I'm not going there today. But but man is alone in the garden. At verse 18 we read, Then the Lord God said, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he had made, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Go back with me to verse 18, the very first verse in this passage. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper 
fit for him. Observe again with me that, that this is uh, the first not good in all of the creational narrative. We're bumping along in Genesis 6. He, at the close of each day of creation, we read this, that God saw that all that he had made, and behold, it was good. At the end of the sixth day, when he created mankind, he says, it is very good. So everything's good. Everything's very good. Until we reach Genesis 2, verse 18. Secondly, it's important that we recognize that this is God's diagnosis, not the man's. It's not the man that's saying, it's kind of a bummer, I'm out here, God, I'm all alone. It's not what's going on. It's, it's God's diagnosis. This is theological scripture. It's God's diagnosis, not the man's. Third, it's also important that we theologize here rather than psychologize the divine diagnosis. I remember when I was in school, the one of my professors saying, as you read Genesis 1 to 3, you, you read it like you're walking along the edge of a razor. And, and, and if you turn to the left or you turn to the right, you, you fall off. You've got to follow it where it leads you. So we don't theo- we don't psychologize here. We we theolo- theologize. The divine diagnosis is is not a commentary on Adam's emotional state. The text doesn't say that the man was, for example, lonely. I've heard people say that. Well, the man was lonely. It's not what the scripture says. And in fact, on the contrary, consider the fact that he had God himself, his Creator, as his daily companion. Rather, it says, it is not good that the man should be alone. What does that mean? It's not to say that he might not have experienced some level of loneliness. It is rather to say that the narrative just doesn't address it. It's not something that's in view in this passage. In the activity of coming to understand his environment and of fulfilling the command to rule over the earth, He's naming the animals, which in the ancient East was the prerogative of a ruler to give someone or something its name, or in the family, the prerogative of a father. In chapter 3, we read that it's Adam who names Eve. But as Adam is out there and he's, he's, he's getting to know the garden, he's getting to know what's there, he's getting to know the animals, the birds, the fish, the realization has to have been awakened in his consciousness that in all of the garden, in all of creation, there was in fact no one else like him. No one. That he was utterly alone, that there was not a helper fit for him, nor should we interpret the statement in verse 20, but for Adam there is not found a helper fit for him to mean that he had gone looking for a companion among the animals or birds. It's not what's being said. In light of what's already been established in Genesis 1, what I'm calling for our purposes today, the divine diagnosis, it's not good that the man should be alone, has to be understood first in the sense that without a female, against the backdrop of Genesis 1, without a female, the image of God in humanity was incomplete. Does that make sense? Nod your heads if it does. Um. Hang on. Second, we have to understand it in the sense that unlike the animals and birds, he as the lone human in all of creation has no means to reproduce. There's no way. And third, that he had, which was the command, right? Be fruitful and multiply. He couldn't fulfill that command on his own. Third, that he had no counterpart in the work of fulfilling the command of subduing the earth and ruling over it. On the heels of that divine diagnosis came the the divine prescription. These are my words, right? My labels, okay? No one else's. The divine prescription is this. I will make him a helper fit for him. And as God declares that, he, he, uh, he harnesses himself into a particular expectation. That phrase, a helper fit for him, is a loaded one. In Hebrew, it's azer konegdo. Azer konegdo. What does it mean? Azer means help. Uh, it means helper. It, 
Uh, it also means power. It's not, not a helper in the sense of being a subordinate, not a helper in the sense of being an, an inferior or an apprentice, but someone who comes alongside as a help. An example of, of a place where this word is used is Psalm 121, familiar to some of us, where the psalmist says, I lift my eyes unto the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Um, and the word there, where does my help, is azer. Uh, my help, azer, comes from the Lord, or more literally, uh, my azer, the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. So there's not, there's not this sense that, that the help that God is prescribing is an inferior in any way. The word is used of God himself. The second word is connecto, and it indicates that whatever it is that God is about to make uh, to solve the problem of man's aloneness is going to correspond to him in every meaningful way. Uh, if you grew up on the King James Version of the Bible like I did, Azer connecto was translated in Old English with the word meet, M-E-E-T, meaning suitable, meaning complementary with an E, uh, it's worth noting that, that one possible legitimate translation of Azer Konegdo is this, a power equal to him. The phrase carries the connotation of being like him, but differentiated from him as a counterpart. And again, in context, the one that God would make would be a help in image bearing, in procreation, in the exercise of dominion over the rest of creation, and intending and keeping the garden. And then came what I'm just calling now the divine surgery. The divine surgery. God's both the anesthetist. He causes the man to sleep. He's the surgeon. Um, he, uh, he, he takes a rib from the man. God, God put Adam to sleep, I think, uh, because he didn't want to have to listen to Adam's advice about what he should make. Uh, but, but, but notice that that this one whom God would make, this Azer Konegdo, would be the product of a separate and distinct act of creation and would be taken from him, from his body. What did God make? What was it that uniquely and exclusively fulfilled the divine prescription? He made a woman. A woman. He didn't make a man. He didn't make an animal. He didn't make a bird. He made a woman. Let's call her prime rib. <laughs> I've heard it said that God made woman after man because he always saves the best for last. I've also heard that God made woman last because he didn't want any advice as he made the rest of creation. Here's another question. How many women did God make and bring to the man? One. What was the man's response? This at last is bone. Notice the, notice the organic response here. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because, he says, because she was taken out of man is a, a play on words there. The Hebrew word for man is ish. The Hebrew word for woman is isha. What truth is he expressing? He's saying, she's like me because she is from me, but she is also wonderfully, mind-blowingly, even bewilderingly different from me. And then he speaks in tongues. He says, Vive la difference. Well, fresh. Long live the difference. And then comes the summary. And it's like an editorial comment here in Genesis 2. Therefore, some of your translations say, For this reason. Make note of that for this reason. In light of everything that's just been said, everything that's just happened, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And notice again with me, and I, 
I don't mind being redundant. It's a man, singular, and his wife, singular. The clear implication is that because the woman was made from the man's rib, as they come back together in marriage, they complete each other. They are again one flesh in a comprehensive, thoroughgoing kind of way. So let's just review really really quickly. The divine diagnosis, it's not good for the man to be alone. The divine prescription, I will make him a helper fit for him. The divine surgery from the rib of the man. The divine fulfillment of the prescription, the Lord God made a woman and brought her to the man. Must have been a cool moment, right? Kind of picture God as the father of the bride, leading her not down an aisle in a church, but down a trail in a garden, beaming and bringing her to the man who's just waking up. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they, and here's something important in the Hebrew, they is shenayim, it means two. It means two. The two shall become one flesh. Diagnosis, prescription, fulfillment, all three precise and perfect came from the heart and the mind and the will of the Creator God. Don't miss this. Underline it. Memorize it. Tape it to your forehead. Never forget it. God solved the not good of the man's aloneness by creating from him not another man, but another woman. He created one woman. This is established from the beginning as the pattern for human sexuality, human marriage, human blessing. And as we're going to see uh, as we move forward, this pattern is the pattern that is referred to for authority in the New Testament for what the New Testament teaches on marriage and the relationships between men and women. We'll return again to this next week as we talk about the question of homosexuality or transgenderism. Go with me now to Proverbs 5, where we read this, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. The fifth chapter of Proverbs begins with this two-word phrase, my son, as does the section of chapter 5 that commences at verse 7. In this chapter, the writer, who is presumed to be David's son, uh, King Solomon, is warning his uh, his sons, instructing them on matters of sexual morality, sexual immorality. You know, think of this as the the talk, you know, and or at least part of an ongoing talk between a father and his son or sons. In verses 15 to 19, he includes this unabashed call to each of them to seek their fulfillment in the exclusive sexual intimacy of a marriage to the wife of their youth, that is, to one's first wife. There's some language here that's ancient, that, that's different from the way we would express it. But without attempting to interpret those poetic references, which could lead to a little embarrassment for some or all of us, and probably for me too, I'll, I'll just say that, that there is here, first of all, an implication, even a celebration, of, of the sheer goodness of an exclusive marital sexual relationship, along with a call to monogamy, to his sons, to monogamy, to be one woman men. Go then to the Song of Solomon. This book also is attributed to David's son Solomon, king of Israel. Many people are surprised to find at the very center of their Bibles a beautifully crafted love poem that's it's written in dialogue form and is in some places poetically erotic. 
in its content. In chapter 2, verses 10 to 13, is this invitation from a young man to the young woman he loves to arise and come away. It's springtime. It's the time for love. He says, it says this, my beloved speaks. This is the, the young woman speaking. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. And said all of that without Snow White walking through or bunnies or anything. But the, the whole of the Song of Solomon is a celebration of love, of intimacy and of monogamous heterosexual marriage. We turn now to the New Testament and Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. You guys doing okay? Eyes glazing over yet? Matthew 19, beginning of verse 3, And Pharisees came up to him, that is Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. What lies behind the question of the Pharisees is a conflict that had been ongoing for centuries between the two dominant rabbinical schools of thought over the proper interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 Verse 1, in order to understand verse 1, however, we have to read it in context, in part because verse 1 is only a section of one sentence that spans four verses. But let me read those four verses for us. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you, or an inheritance. There's a lot there. And clearly the context is the question of whether a woman once divorced from her first husband and having remarried another may upon the death of the second husband return to the first husband and be married to him once again. And the answer, of course, is a firm no. I don't have to unpack the reasons why the answer is no here. And in fact, the Jewish religious leaders we're not in conflict on that question. Their conflict instead, surprisingly, ridiculously, centered on verse 1 and the meaning of the phrase, some indecency. That is, what constituted legitimate grounds for divorce? One school of thought held such a liberal view that a Jewish man could divorce his wife for, like, burning the bagels at breakfast. Okay? The other, more conservative school of thought held that it needed to be a more serious violation, something more significant, more substantive. However, what both schools of thought agreed upon was that a man had complete authority to divorce his wife at will. So the question in verse 1 of Matthew 19 is better translated. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason that he might choose. Probably important to just note that 
In those days, women had very few rights with regard to divorcing their husbands. The man held all the cards. Jesus replied by asking the Pharisees a question that I personally find to be pretty funny. It's like, he's talking to Pharisees. He says, have you not read? (laughs) You know, and to ask a Pharisee if that question is to ask, are you an imposter? Who are you? How'd you earn your Pharisee merit badge? You know, he, he, he goes on to ask whether they had never read the creational thesis on marriage. Have you not read that from the beginning, He made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. With therefore God is joined together. Let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Because of you. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. See, they had it wrong. The standard for, for seeking a divorce was miles higher than any of them had come to understand. Marriage is a divinely created, divinely ordained, one flesh relationship. And for that reason, those who held an easy divorce view of marriage were in fact guilty of opposing God himself by separating what God has joined together. The command, what God has joined together, let no one separate, is in fact better translated, let no one go on separating, or even more literally, let no one keep tearing apart. Who was doing that? Jesus said, you guys are doing that. The Jewish religious leaders themselves. Jesus told them with authority that Moses had not commanded them to give a certificate of divorce and send their wives away. What a ridiculous command that would be. Instead, Moses had allowed them to divorce their wives, not for the sake of the men, but for the sake of their wives as a protective measure to protect women who had very few rights in society from being abused and disenfranchised by hard-hearted men. See, Jesus just blows them out of the water then by concluding But from the beginning, it was not so. There's the creational pattern. There's the creational design. And he goes on, whoever then would divorce his wife except for the cause of unrepentant sexual immorality and marry another is guilty of committing adultery. Today, we'd call that a mic drop moment, right? The Pharisees hung themselves on their own question. Jesus' response revealed not only were they who taught and uh, who by what they taught and practiced demonstrating ignorance of God's word or, or at least a willful disregard of it, but they also were tearing apart what God had joined together. They were violating God's creational design. They were committing adultery. They were affirming their followers to do the same. It doesn't tell us, but I think they just slinked away, you know, hung their heads and wandered away. It was an ouchy kind of moment for them. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 7. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth now concerning the matters about which you wrote. This is uh, their Q&A series. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Again, I don't have time to unpack all of this, but here in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is pointing to one of the primary purposes for marriage, which is to mutually, equally, submissively serve one another's sexual needs. Very matter of fact, very down to earth. And by that, fulfilling the biblical design while also protecting one another from undue sexual temptation that would serve 
to impede the progress in the context of what Paul is saying of their spiritual growth. 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 and 12. Very simple, an overseer must be above reproach. Talking about the elders in the church. The husband of one wife. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. We saw these verses a couple of weeks ago as we thought together about gender roles and church leadership. Notice this morning that that one who would be an elder or a deacon in his church is to reflect the Christ-like character of being a one-woman man, faithful in every way to his wife. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 to 3. Paul again writing to the Christians in Corinth, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And Paul's saying, hey, I'm the one that led you to faith in Jesus. As I did that, I was betrothing you as a wife to one husband. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What I want you to see here is that this passage signals Paul's introduction, really for the first time, of the image of the New Testament church as a bride who is betrothed to one husband. That husband is Jesus Christ. Notice, please, the word one. One pure, virginal bride, one husband. And and that's carried on right through the rest of the New Testament and, and reaches its crescendo in the book of Revelation. One of the richest teachings in the New Testament on Christian marriage is found in Ephesians 5, 18 to 33. It's the one that gives us the fullest immersion into the, the mystery that Christian marriage is designed to serve as a living portrait of the love of Christ for his bride, the church. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. I just wanted to make a few observations for our purposes today. I won't put the scripture on the screen. First, a mutually submissive Christian marriage, as Paul introduces it in verses 18 to 21 and following, is not possible. It's impossible. It's impossible. What do I mean by that? It's impossible, Paul wants them to understand, without becoming the new creation that Christ makes us to be when we put our faith in him. And it's impossible without the enablement on a continual basis of the filling of the Holy Spirit. So he says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Second, Christian wife is to submit to her own husband as to the Lord. This does not mean men and women, husbands and wives, both of us, need to hear this. This does not mean that she must relate to her husband as if he is the Lord, even though he might think so. But rather that her submission to him as her spiritual head is part and parcel of her submission to the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. And he clarifies that in verse 22 by adding that Christ alone is himself the Savior. Her model for her submission to her husband is to be the submission of the church to Christ. Third, the model for a husband's submission to his wife as her spiritual head is the sacrificial love of Christ who gave himself up for the church. His love for his wife, Paul says, should result, like Christ's love for the church, in her sanctification. That is that uh, she would grow spiritually because of his influence in her life She would be increasingly holy because of his influence in her life. He's to love his wife as himself. He's to care for her like he cares for his own body because she is one flesh with him. Again, one Christ, one church, one husband, one wife. Finally, Revelation 19, verses 6 to 8. John's description of the announcement of the marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of time. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! 
For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with the linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Have you ever noticed that the Bible begins with a marriage and concludes with a marriage? The wonderful mystery of marriage is that the core of God's divine design and intent for human experience in both time and eternity. A day is coming when Christ will return for his bride, the church, and we will then be joined with him for all of eternity. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, deep breath, deep refreshing breath, and exhale. That was a a little bit of a wind sprint through Scripture. Let's turn our attention now to the question, what in the world explains the recent rise in the acceptance of polygamy in the United States? Since 2003, the Gallup survey has conducted five nationwide surveys that measured the public's view of the moral acceptability of polygamy. The first survey in 2003 showed that 7% of Americans saw polygamy as morally acceptable. Uh, Since then, that percentage has gradually increased, reaching its highest point in history in 2023, this year. This year's survey revealed that 23%, or nearly one in four Americans, feel that polygamy is a morally acceptable arrangement. question is why? What's behind this warming of attitudes toward polygamy as an acceptable form of marriage? Before we explore answers to that question, a couple of caveats are probably in order. First, the legal status of polygamy in the United States is virtually unchanged. It's still illegal in all 50 states, even including Utah. And in fact, polygamy actually finds very little support, according to the survey, among Mormons. According to the survey, nearly 9 in 10 Latter-day Saints members say it's morally wrong. Secondly, although the acceptability of polygamy has risen significantly, according to Gallup, it still ranks in the basement amongst 20 21 morally accepted behaviors that they researched. It's it's fourth from the bottom of the 21. But what explains then this upswing in the U.S. in acceptance of polygamy? One explanation, perhaps I think the most plausible one, lies with the fact that it's just another symptom of a general trend of increased liberalism with regard to a whole host of moral issues. And I don't mean liberalism in a political sense. I just mean liberalism in a moral sense. Views of polygamy aren't changing in a vacuum. For example, acceptance of gay or lesbian relations has risen by 22%, while attitudes about things like having a baby out of wedlock or sex outside of marriage or divorce itself have changed commensurate with attitudes about polygamy. There's, they're rising together. The, the trend of loosening traditional expectations, biblical expectations about marriage and sexual relations in general tends to make the idea of polygamy less objectionable. You can add to the, the possible reasons for the increased acceptance of polygamy, the more frequent and more positive portrayals of polygamous households in the mass media. For example, uh, there have been a few popular television shows and documentaries in recent years like Sister Wives, uh, Big Love, My Five Wives, uh, most recently the the Tiger King series, which is polyandry, um, male homosexual polygamy. Uh, Those taken together possibly has had the impact of of causing polygamy to seem a bit more everyday, a little bit more routine, a little bit less deviant. 
Gallup also asked the question, who, who tends to be the most affected by these influences, by these changing attitudes? And the answer was that young people are at the top of that list, the most impressionable. And then he says, the, the, the test said, the less religious, those who are less affiliated with, with any religious group, the unmarried tend to be more open to polygamy, those who are on the left on the political spectrum tend to be decidedly more accepting of polygamy and other sexual and marital arrangements than those who are middle-aged or older, those who are married, those who are to the right politically. So approval is rising, probably the product of a number, number of influences. But does the Bible then approve the practice of polygamy? Does, does the Bible go along with society or, or do we expect something different? We saw earlier that the creational design and prescription for marriage that's established in Genesis 1 and 2 that threads its way throughout the Old and New Testaments is this, one man and one woman in a lifelong sexually exclusive relationship. And yet, one can get, can get the impression, as you read through the Old Testament, that God not only allows but condones polygamy. You can also get the false impression that polygamy was just everywhere, that everyone was practicing it. And that's actually not accurate. I want to give you a principle of biblical interpretation that, that I rarely hear articulated, but which I think if followed would very quickly eliminate a great deal of confusion for many on a whole host of topics, including this one. Here it is. Never confuse what the Bible describes with what it prescribes. Never confuse what the Bible describes with what it prescribes. Because the Bible describes all kinds of things, right? That it doesn't prescribe and it doesn't condone. So with regard to marriage, Genesis 1 and 2 is entirely, and probably 3 as well, entirely prescriptive. And all of the New Testament teaching on marriage appeals for its authority to the prescriptions of Genesis 1 to 2. And that's one of the most important reasons why we need to be perfectly clear on what it says, what it doesn't say, and never play fast and loose with it. God the Creator presides over the gift of sexuality, the gift of marriage. The creational narrative is clearly meant to set the pattern for marriage and for the relationships of men and women in the family, in the synagogue, and in the church. In Genesis 3, sin enters the world, dismantles that intimate one flesh, naked without shame, relationship between the man and the woman, tragically corrupts the relationship between each of them and God. And from that point on, the majority of what follows in the Old Testament is descriptive of the progressive spread of sin to all of mankind, bringing destruction and devastation in its wake. We need to be discerning to distinguish between what God commands and the ways that God's people have responded or failed to respond in obedience to his commands. Given what we saw earlier, however briefly and however quickly, I hope that it becomes clearly obvious to you that the practice of polygamous marriage is one of the corruptions of God's creational design for marriage. And contrary to popular opinion, the law of Moses does, in fact, prohibit the practice of polygamy. In Leviticus 18.18, 18, you might want to write that down, it's written, and you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness, a euphemism for having sexual relations with her, while her sister is still alive. There's been a good deal of scholarly debate over what is actually being said here. And some argue that this verse actually shuts down the entire debate on polygamy. I'm, I'm with them. In Hebrew, the phrase, as a rival wife to her sister, literally means a woman to her sister. <clears throat> a woman to her sister. Uh, one biblical scholar observes that that everywhere else this phrase occurs in the Old Testament, it's always, always used idiomatically in the sense of one in addition to another. And nowhere else in Scripture um, 
doesn't refer to literal sisters. Again, that's one of the principles of biblical interpretation when you're looking at a phrase. How's it used? How's it used elsewhere? So the word sister in verse 18 should instead be interpreted broadly as any woman in addition to a first wife. In other words, if we interpret this phrase the way it's used everywhere else in the Old Testament, the verse would read, do not marry one woman in addition to another. Asserting a prohibition to polygamy in general. Or in other words, the multiplication of wives is prohibited. There's another command related to polygamy in Deuteronomy 17. It's addressed to the nation of Israel as they enter the land of promise. and It anticipates the prospect that the nation of Israel will in the future choose to set a king over themselves. One of God's warnings regarding a future king is in verse 17, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Lest his heart turn away. It proved, didn't it, to be a prophetic passage. Because, of course, Israel did in time choose to set a king over the nation to the objections of of the prophet Samuel. Though the first king of Israel, Saul, didn't multiply wives, even though he did a number of other boneheaded things, uh, we know that King David, whom God chose to succeed Saul on the throne, took eight wives. Uh, who gave him many children and gave him many headaches. (laughs) Bitter consequences, including rivalries and rebellions that brought him pain and heartache and regret and even shame. But his son Solomon, who ascended the throne upon David's death, kind of kicked it up a notch or two. Um, He married 700 wives, had 300 concubines in addition. Can you imagine thousand women in your house. In light of that, you know, I, I think it's, it's hard to believe he's regarded as the wisest man who's ever lived. <laughs> yeah, and a high percentage of those women were pagans from foreign nations. 1 Kings 11 records Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the gods of the Sidonian, goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not Holy follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. By the way, this is the ultimate reason why we should pray diligently, do everything in our power, parents and grandparents, to see that our children and grandchildren marry men and women who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ, that their hearts not be turned away from the Lord to do what is evil in his sight. David and Solomon are prominent prominent examples, but, but there are others, lots of kings that followed that took multiple wives. The very first person to take multiple wives was this not-so-nice guy named Lamech back in Genesis 4. He was a murderer. Another example is Abraham, who took his wife's servant girl, Hagar. She, she gave birth to a son named Ishmael. Remember that story? Ishmael became a thorn in Abraham's side. A rivalry developed then between Hagar and Sarah, Abraham's wife. So mother and son were then sent away. Ishmael became the father of the Arab race with whom Israel is still experiencing bitter conflict to this very day. Jacob married sisters Leah and Rachel, not by his choice, but he was tricked into it. And their family experience was attended by a great deal of conflict and strife as well. It's almost axiomatic in Scripture and in life that when polygamy is entered into, disaster follows, suffering follows. And it's all too predictable in a polygamous marriage that women tend to be objectified, subjugated, oppressed, abused. 
Well, why does this matter? Why does this matter? And I fully recognize that some of you may be saying under your breath this morning, come on, Jim, you got to be kidding me. This topic is entirely irrelevant to my life. No one I know practices polygamy, so why should we even give it a thought? And trust me, I had similar thoughts as I prepared this message. <laughs> and I realize it's likely that there's there's probably no one in the room today, no one watching online who has ever even entertained the notion of entering into a polygamous marriage. But consider this. We've observed this morning that social and moral approval of polygamy seems to be on the rise in our nation. There's a reason that reality television shows and docudramas that present polygamy in a positive light have gained a viewing audience. Where is this current trend going to take us as a society? Polygamy remains illegal in the United States at present, But is it possible, is it possible that the trend might continue to move in the direction of majority approval and legalization? Stranger things have happened, wouldn't you agree? In fact, in these last days, anything, it seems, is possible. What I want to suggest is that what we think about these things matters. And for most, if not all of us, this at present is a matter of the mind. What our minds approve. What our minds give margin to. The Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. J.B. Phillips, in his own insightful way, paraphrased Romans 12.2 in these words, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. But let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. To the Christians in Ephesus, Paul issued this warning, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their what? Minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So what I want to say to you in closing this morning in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 is this, brothers, sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. See, giving thought to what you may actually think, what you may actually accept, what you may actually approve about various sexual or marital arrangements might just serve as a valuable measure of the posture and the condition of your own heart. The Old Testament says, as a man thinks within himself, so is he. As a man thinks within himself, so is he. So let me ask you. Can you imagine your sons or grandsons taking multiple wives? And, or your friends' sons or grandsons? Why or why not? Is the thought of your daughters or your granddaughters marrying a polygamist, becoming one of a man's multiple wives, an acceptable thought to you. And again, why? Or why not? So I'm just going to conclude this sermon this way. Think about these things. Submit your mind to the Word of God and to the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit. This I know about you. You are reasonable people. And the Lord will give you understanding in everything as you seek it.
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that it speaks right down into our minds, our hearts, even our will, our deepest emotions. Though it was written thousands of years ago, it's living and active because your spirit first breathed it out and your spirit is still breathing it into us. So may we receive it, may we contemplate it, may we engage our minds and our hearts in ways that lead to maturity and to freedom. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.